This is episode number 239 with the incredible plein air and landscape master, Don Demers. This is the Plan Air Podcast with Eric Rhodes, publisher and founder of Plan Air Magazine. In the Plan Air Podcast, we cover the world of outdoor painting. Called Plan Air, the French coined the term, which means open air or outdoors. The French pronounce it Plan Air. Others say Plain Air. No matter how you say it, there is a huge movement of artists around the world who are going outdoors to paint. And this show is about that movement. Now, here's your host, author, publisher, and painter, Eric Rhodes. Thank you, Jim Kipping, and welcome to the Plen Air Podcast. I'm Eric, and I am so excited. I'm, I'm like, I'm reinvigorated. So last week, last Saturday, we ended uh, Watercolor Live, our international conference about watercolor. It was four days. It had a first day, which is a beginner's day, which we've now renamed to, to essentials day. But it started with that day and then three solid days and long days, like 12, eight or 12 hour days. They were long days. And uh, we had like 30 top watercolor masters, everybody really great that you can imagine. And we had uh, 31 countries attending, thousands of people attending and every state in America attending. And that was really, really cool. The best part about it, though, is not just the watercolor education. It is the life-changing transformations that were taking place. You could see people would post their work. Oftentimes, they'd paint along or they'd paint the picture that someone else was, was you know, a master was teaching. You could see at the beginning of the week how their work was. And then by the end of the week, you could see the same people how their work had dramatically improved. I mean, dramatically. And it's because all of these little um, tips and techniques and ideas got implanted into their brains. Uh, got implanted into mine too. I, I'm really excited about it. I, I am not primarily a watercolorist, but it's something I'm doing more of than, than ever. And uh, because I've been watching, and I can't watch the whole thing because I'm host and there's stuff going on behind the scenes in the background. But you know, I, I'm even seeing personal improvement. So I'm excited about that. And, and, uh, I have not done much plein air watercolor yet. Uh, I've done a little, I did actually, I did quite a bit in New Zealand. As a matter of fact, um, I did oil. And then, you know, if I needed to, to kill another quick hour or something, I'd do a watercolor and I had some really good ones. I'm really happy with. So anyway, uh, might give it a try, but just, it was, it was really a lot of fun. So uh, Sunday after church, uh, Sunday was my day off because I was done with Watercolor Live. And after church, I, I really wanted to go painting, but I was just so exhausted. I think I went back to, to bed or laid down or something. Didn't do any painting at all. But uh, last night, I, I was able to get out into my studio anyway. I didn't get any plein air painting. And by the way, here in Austin, we're having an ice storm. I think most of America is getting it. And so... Uh, no plein air painting for me today, 
But um, anyway, I, I'm working on this 30 by 40 piece that I did in the Adirondacks from a study, and uh, I'm getting ready to send it off to the gallery. I will. I put it away for a couple of weeks. I'm working on it again. I see some flaws. Then I'll put it away for a couple more weeks and work on it again, and hopefully it'll be kind of ready to go, and I'm excited about that. Speaking of excited, man, it's always nice when you get recognition, right? You work hard, you get recognition. We are humbled to announce that we're number one in the feed spot list of painting podcasts for a second year in a row. Um, thank you for that. Uh, thank you for listening to the Plenary Podcast. It's like 90 countries, 120 countries that listen. Uh, we've had millions of downloads. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool. Thank you for that. Um, our next big online conference is perfect for you. It's perfect for you because if you have not yet learned about the plein air lifestyle maybe you're listening to this but you haven't gone outdoors to paint it is different it's different than painting indoors now you know color mixing is the same and things like that but you know when you're painting outdoors you're dealing with a lot of other things and you got to learn how to deal with them outdoors i like the idea of learning to paint first indoors and then going outdoors because it just makes it a little easier but the event coming up in March is Plen Air Live. It's an online conference. There will be thousands of people attending from around the world, 30 top instructors. And it's kind of like spring training for painters. Now, the Plen Air Convention coming up is also that, but spring training for people who can't make it to the Plen Air Convention. And uh, it's uh, three days plus Essentials Day, and you can learn so much. And that's coming up at plenairlive.com. Make sure you check that out. And you can attend from anywhere. You can watch in the comfort of your home, no matter where you are. We actually had people in other countries sitting up at two, three o'clock in the morning because they were so excited to be there live because there's something about being on live when you can because you get that interaction with everybody. You get to ask questions of the, the faculty members uh, in the chat. You know, you get to chat with people. You get the breakout rooms. Everybody made a lot of friends. As a matter of fact, I was putting people together. Like I found people that lived in the same area, but they didn't know each other and they needed people to paint with. So I'd like put them all on a Zoom call together and get them acquainted. And I did that a few times. That was kind of fun. Um, speaking of fun, plein air convention, it's going to be fun. And you probably heard this already, but we announced that Jane Seymour, the actress, uh, Golden Globe winning, has uh, committed to come to the Plein Air Convention. We decided it would be fun to do something different this year because we're celebrating our 10th year. So we're going to do some stuff. I've got a planning meeting later today, as a matter of fact. We're going to come up with some birthday stuff, and uh, it'll be a good year to come. If you're going to come in a year, come this year, especially because we're going to be in Denver. We're going to be painting around Colorado, some of the most incredible places in the world. And we all paint together every day, but we also learn together. We have five stages, and uh, those five stages will allow you to, you know, if you don't like one stage, you can go to another. Yeah, we have a watercolor stage. We have a pastel stage. We have a main stage, which is all the main speakers and all the mostly oil painting, although we do have some watercolor. Al Alvera Cassinet is going to be on the main stage this year because uh, he's such a big deal. And... Uh, and then we have all these other stages. We have a stage, a couple stages we call demo stages, which is just different kinds of demos going on all the time. And people are setting up in the halls and painting portraits and, and they're in the expo hall buying art materials at deep discounts and they're partying and having a lot of fun. It's just, it's a ball. And uh, if you could ever make it, it'd be great. Um, nothing like being in person. Okay. Anyway, come out uh, and see it. It's going to be a lot of fun. Today, my guest, 
is Don Demers. Don and I have known each other for, oh, probably, probably at least 20 years, maybe longer. Uh, he's a brilliant painter. Uh, he was born in 1956 in a small rural community of Lundberg, Massachusetts. He had an interest in painting marine subjects uh, at an early age. He spent his summers on the coast of Maine in near Booth Bay Harbor. It's where he lives now, part of the time anyway. After finishing high school art programs, he furthered his education in the School of Worcester Art Museum in Worcester, Mass., and then uh, the Mass College of Fine Art in Boston. Uh, his maritime experience came about as crew members aboard a traditional sailing vessel, many, I guess, including schooners and square riggers and continues to be an avid saver. Sa sailor, and as you know, or you, maybe you don't know, people who paint ships know the rigging, right? And people who buy paintings of people who paint sh ships, they know that if the rigging is wrong. And so I think that's really important. Uh, Don's really a terrific guy, a great human being, really, really, really sweet, friendly, giving, uh, generous, wants to wants to help other people. Now, this is a little unusual today because the podcast, I had the chance to record him in our soundstage on the set when he was here filming a new video, which is going to be coming out soon. He's also got one out now called Mastering a Nautical Scene uh, that you can get at paint.tube.tv. But uh, we took advantage of that time in the studio together. So we just sat down in the in the chairs of the studio and did the uh, the interview there. So for those of you who are watching, we're not on the the set of uh, the Plein Air podcast at the moment, but it's the same content. It's just a different set. Let's get to that right now. Our guest today on the Plein Air podcast is Don Demers. Don, welcome to the Plein Air podcast. Thanks so much, Eric. It is great to be here and to be with you again. Now, I'm trying to think about when we first met and I, I'm not sure it was back east somewhere, and it, it may have been, it may have been at a workshop or something. The Plein Air Painters of America put on. Um, gosh, I wish I could remember exactly when it occurred. It was a while, It was 20 years ago. Yeah, at least it was some time ago. Yeah. Um, I became a member of uh, Plein Air Painters of America around 2004. Um, somewhere in there. Uh, I honestly don't remember. The last, I do remember being with Plein Air Painters of America in Mount Desert up in Acadia with you. We had a good week up there. Maybe that's where we really got to know each other. We got so. to know each other there. We'd met prior to that. Um, I was in Monterey with you at the uh, second convention, that's I think. That's right. Yeah. That's right. With John Stobart. Uh, oh, classic. Yeah. What a classic. <laughs> that was fun. Well, you uh, have had a really terrific career, and I want to kind of dig into that. But let's first go back to the very, very beginning, because I like to understand the roots. Um, I, I recently read something that uh, psychiatrists say that pretty much anything that happens before you're 10 years old kind of determines your track in life, mm -hmm. or at least how you, how you interpret the world or your lens. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, growing up and where you grew up and when you kind of first started thinking about art. Huh. Uh, by the way, thanks for having me. You're very it's, welcome. It's very flattering and um, uh, humbling when you're asked about your life and what you're doing with it. So I'm very appreciative of that and I want to thank you for it. 
Um, I grew up in central Massachusetts in a farm town, in a big old white farmhouse. My dad was a bricklayer uh, and had uh, four brothers. Um, so it was a rough and tumble household. Um, we, we got to go on vacation to Booth Bay Harbor, Maine, for two weeks every summer because my grandparents had a little cottage up there. And I started drawing in, uh, when, when I was so young, I barely remember it. But I do remember this. My mother and father had an in-home office, basically a desk and a filing cabinet. My mom kept the books for my dad's masonry business. And I used to sneak in there and steal the paper and even envelopes to do drawings on. And I, <laughs> I remember my mother and my father both scolding me. Donnie, that's not what that paper's for. <laughs> so I just started drawing. Uh, it was um, kind of a second language for me. I had some in inexplicable want and need to draw things. And of course, when I was a little kid, so they were uh, jet planes and trains and trucks and superheroes and monsters and all that kind of stuff that <laughs> from being in the uh, early 60s, anything yeah. that was inspiring me from the television or the from Bat comic Mobile. books. Oh, the Batmobile I drew many <laughs> times from every angle, all that stuff. So it was always just part of my way of communicating. Uh -huh. And it never occurred to me not to do it. And it wasn't long before I was eight or nine or 10 years old and my family referred to me, oh, Donna, he's the artist. So huh. it just stuck. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of how your, your uh, how would they say that? That became your self-worth or your, it gave you confidence. You identified as an artist. At that very point. much so. Yeah. Very much so. It was something that my other brothers couldn't do. And uh, of course, we all played sports. We beat each other up. We yeah. built tree houses. We ran, you know, ran through the woods and the orchards and all that. So I did all of that with them. But that was my thing. And was there farming involved? You said you lived on a far in a farmhouse. Well, there were apple orchards everywhere. We didn't operate one, but there was one across the street, and there was one just down the road a little bit. So we we volunteered to. Uh, every harvest season, everybody in the neighborhood, we all picked apples. Uh, the, the teenagers got to use the ladders. Runts like me had to pick the, pick the drops off the ground and uh, put them in the wooden boxes. And my father drove a big trailer truck and everybody lined them up. And it was, it was a great way what to grow up. What a great childhood. It was. It was wonderful, wonderful. So what happened? Uh, how did your art um, progress? You, you go into school, high school. Did you take art classes or anything like that? Well, there was something that, that uh, happened prior to that, and that was my mom was an amateur painter, and, uh, and my aunt Jean, her sister, was also an amateur painter, but they were good, my aunt particularly. She still paints. She's 92, and she's still painting away. That's fabulous. Yeah, it's great. And um, so I was around the oil paints, and um, so I, I saw the materials. I remember a big coffee table book that came, uh, my aunt had it of uh, Andrew Wyeth paintings. And that was that. And I, I started to stare at that. And because we were in Booth Bay in the summer, I was very young. I don't remember exactly what age, 10-ish, somewhere in there. And went to the Farnsworth. My aunt took me there. Mm -hmm. And um, I saw Wyeth paintings for the first time. And that planted the seed. Mm. And then when I was in the sixth grade, I was given a paint by number. <laughs> I'm not boring you with this. but. Paint by number for Christmas from some aunt that I can't even remember who it was. And it was of two Cocker Spaniels. And I couldn't wait to get that thing done. And then I thought, well, that looks kind of stupid. I'm going to blend the edges. So 
<laughs> so I turned it into a much more realistic picture just by blending the edges from the spaces. And then I had a lot of paint left over, so I put the Cocker Spaniels aside and I painted a seascape. Really? <laughs> Still have that painting? Uh, it may be in the attic of the old house because my youngest brother still lives in the house. It might be up there somewhere. Right. So I was, I was just oriented toward the materials, the well, tools. Well, you need to get that because it's going to go in the Smithsonian <laughs> someday. <laughs> Maybe in some pet museum somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so then, yes, high school. And I had the greatest benefit of having an absolutely wonderful high school art teacher. Her name was Neldy Drum, and she was a taskmaster. And I, I spent every spare minute in, uh, I was either shooting street hockey balls in the gymnasium with my brothers because we all played ice hockey or I was in the art room. And I spent an inordinate amount of time with her in there. And did, did you, were you kind of like the star student? Because yeah. Because you had a lot of yep. experience drawing? I worked the hardest. I loved it the most. I was in there constantly. Mm -hmm. So I had a key to the art room. I, I bought the supplies for the high school <laughs> art program, and, and she stuck up for me and stood by my side and gave me uh, pretty much free reign through uh, my four years of high school. And what, what do you think you were, you remember what you were doing? Were you painting? Were you doing a little bit of everything? Uh, I was kind of a snob. Um, you know, we had, uh, you had to do some jewelry classes and, and some sculpture activities to fulfill the requirements of the class and I just look at Mrs. Drum and she says just, just go paint. <laughs> so <laughs> she said I know you don't want to do those other things just do what you're interested in doing. So I was painting outside. I was doing outdoor landscape You were? Work. Really? Yeah, I go up behind the high school into the woods and paint and um, I also did a lot of still lives. Um, uh, some work from photographs you know peeling stuff out of National Geographic and all that kind of thing and uh -huh. doing figures in the paintings and all, anything I could get my hands on. Oh, a lot of, a lot of uh, sporting art, a lot of hockey scenes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's interesting that you went outdoors. Um, had, was this a, you know, an idea that you had on your own or had you seen an example of somebody going outdoors that gave you the idea? You know, Not that I pictures recall. Pictures of Monet or something? Nope, I just did it on my own. Yeah. I loved being outside. My, we grew up with the uh, German Shepherds, and my one favorite German Shepherd is Marco. And so I take my paint box, and I take Marco, and we go into the woods for the whole day. And um, I still have some of those paintings. Do you? Yeah. yeah. And I just set up. I was a very contemplative kid. Part of me was active and social and gregarious, but I had a very contemplative side to me. I wanted to be by myself. And um, I go out into those woods and set up my paint box, and... Marco would run around and sit by my side and I'd paint. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah lots of that. <laughs> so yeah. it, you learned the lesson of outdoor painting at a young age. Uh, you know, this is a, an issue that I have. There's not a right or wrong, but, you know, there, there are people who have spent their entire life painting from photographs or painting in the studio and never have gone outside to paint in the light. Yeah. And that changes everything. Everything changes. Absolutely everything changes. Uh, there's such a barrier, and I don't want to criticize or uh, uh, diminish anyone who chooses to work from photography. The beautiful thing about the creative endeavors is every one of them is custom fit to yeah. who, whoever that person is. But for, I became aware um, of the fact that you know, we're, we're multi-sensory beings and we're binocular, 
and we're bipeds and we live in a spherical world and we're walking into that world with all of these influences and these, as I was saying in my recent video that um, people look at the sea and they think of waves. Well, what they're missing is the fact that it's an in, invisible energy source that has a frequency and an oscillation that's moving the water. At the same time, we walk outside, there's sound waves and light waves that are coming at us. There's energy coming to us. And if you experience it in its full dimension by being in it, it completely changes your, your perceptions. See, and, I've never heard it articulated in that way. I never really thought about that. Huh. Uh, but, it, you know, the essence of what you're saying is so important because... And, and of course, I experienced it, and of course, I published Plein Air Magazine, which is all about going outdoors. But, but the idea of capturing that essence, you know, that that vibration of light, mm -hmm. um, and and also the senses, you know, everything's about a sensory experience, and to have the, you know the wind blowing and the birds singing and the dogs barking or whatever, it just all informs kind of the, the essence of the scene. It absolutely does. In the summertime when you hear that, that cricket chirping, it, any of that is affecting your fingertips. Yeah. And it's coming in here, your two, your two intelligent centers, your heart and your mind. Mm -hmm. And it's traveling down there, it's informing it. And I've said to my students, if they're working from photographs, be careful of that because that's like kissing through a screen door. You're damn close, but you're not there. <laughs> you just have that, that little obstruction that's keeping you from being in the full thing. That's so. a really great analogy. <laughs> well, that's, that's kind of interesting to, to think about that. I, you know, I, I never really, I, I, I never could articulate the difference between a photograph and painting outdoors, but you just said it perfect. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Well, I've done both. As an illustrator, I had to rely on photography. Yeah. You know, and, and, um, and if you have a sense of, um, if you can cultivate a sense of your own presence, boy, you can feel it. Yeah. It's just so different when you're outside um, with the full experience instead of a, a, a truncated or an abbreviated experience. Yeah. So you, uh, you go to high school, you're the star pupil, what happens then? I, I won the high school art award, I got 600 bucks. Wow. That was a big deal. Wow. Is, well, <laughs> it was a big deal in 1974. 1974. Yeah. Yeah, that's six, 600 bucks is a lot of it money. It meant a lot. That was a lot of gasoline for my Impala. <laughs> <laughs> you had an Impala. 1966. I had a 68 Impala. <laughs> Have that in common. Yeah, a 306. Uh, Got see, me around being cool. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. So, uh, <clears throat> so you win the six hundred bucks. You are now empowered. You you know, you now have this extra bolt of confidence. Mm -hmm. What happens? I went to art school in Worcester, Massachusetts, the school of the Worcester Art Museum. The best thing about that school was it was uh, physically and, and institutionally linked to the um, Worcester Art Museum, which is a wonderful museum, exceptional collection for a museum of that size. Um, and it didn't go well. Um, the, the, the culture of art education at that time was to be um, uh, socially conscious, conceptual, avant-garde. There was no craft taught or very little. Um, I was not happy at all. I was the schools at that time were almost anti-craft. Absolutely. 
I was actually told by one of my instructors in front of the class, well, we have someone in the class who, has, who is handicapped. And I knew he was speaking about me because I had just had a consultation with him the day before and he was quite specific about it. So he saw me as being pretty inadequate and actually flawed because I was interest, interested in classic portrayal. That's interesting because I had a very similar experience. I, uh, I didn't start painting until I was 40, but my wife bought me an art lesson at the local art center and I went in and the guy is saying, you know, just express yourself, throw yeah. the paint on the canvas and I said, well, can, you know, can you teach me? I want to learn, like, how to paint a bottle or a flower or, <laughs> exactly. or something. And he said, oh, nobody does that anymore. Yeah. That's been done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I faced the exact same thing. It was made worse because the cast of instructors that I faced had their own personal agendas. So they were trying to make you a minion or an acolyte of what they were doing instead of recognizing your individuality. So I didn't last very long in that school. I lasted a year and a half. Um, I did get to play some college hockey, which was great because they were associated with Clark University. So I played college hockey for Clark. <laughs> um, and then I eventually, I had a little interim time. Um, and then I ended up at the Massachusetts College of Art as a painting major. Uh, I was a triple major. I worked very hard, very hard. What uh, were your majors? Painting, illustration, and graphic design. Oh, my. And I fought that faculty like crazy to allow me to have all. I said, I'll do the work if you let me do it. And again, not to, I sound like I'm being a little bit too negative here, but the administration said, you can't be a painting and an illustration major. They have nothing to do with each other. So... Even then, by then, I knew who Rockwell was and who Dean Cornwell was and who N.C. Wyeth was. So, well, let's talk about that because there was uh, there when I first started publishing fine art connoisseur, somebody said to me, "Well, don't ever uh, cover somebody like Rockwell." And I said, "Why?" And they said, "Well, he's not a fine artist; he's an illustrator." Yeah, but he was a fine artist. Of course. So it's, where where did this all come from? Well, if they want to go all the way back, they can say that Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci were illustrators because they were being told what to paint. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's what an illustrator is. Yeah, I guess that's a really good point. So mm -hmm. it's really, it, but, but you, you can tell. I, we talked at dinner last night about me going to a Cornwall and Rockwell exhibit, and those guys could paint circles around anybody. Absolutely. You know, the subject matter was commercialized, you know, for a cover of a magazine or something, but they were really fine painters. Brilliant painters. Yeah. And my opinion of, of uh, painting is it is not an art. It is a craft. Um, it's, it can become an art if the practitioner is sufficiently qualified. So what, what's the difference? There isn't one. If, if, you, if I had to give a difference... It would be, well, of course, illustration embodies a wide variety of media. You know, you could work in airbrush and pen and ink and mixed media and all that. So that can convolute the definition. But really, the only distinction between illustration and, quote, fine art is that in illustration, you're being directed and instructed by an exterior source. In fine art, in its essence, you're by yourself and you come up with your own ideas. See, I thought you were, you were talking about the difference between, there's a difference between being a proficient painter and being an artist. 
Well, I am. So the difference, I, let, me, let me clarify. The, um, to become, I, I consider artists to be a level of achievement, almost a ranking, if you will. Yeah. There are days when I've been an artist. There are days when I've been a picture maker. <laughs> and there's difference. There's a difference. So, so how you, do you know when you're an artist versus when you're a picture maker? Yeah, you can spot it when you're involved in it and when you're finished. When I, when I am surprised by what it is I've accomplished, that's the, those are the days I'm an artist. Yeah. <laughs> when I already know the outcome at the beginning of the day, then I'm, I'm filling up a canvas. But to be clear, I consider painting to be a craft. And when you're, when you're accomplished enough at your craft, it gives you the opportunity to create art. That gives you the platform. The difference between being a painter and an illustrator, another, a separate question, is that as an illustrator, somebody else is giving you your motivation. Yeah. When you're a fine, quote, fine artist. Well, um, to some extent, somebody in, in that, even in that environment, to some extent, there's this essence or the sense that somebody is giving you that because, you know, if you're making your living in the back of your mind, you're thinking, uh, I have to sell this. Mm -hmm. And so that influences the way you might, or, or can influence the way that you paint. Because Absolutely. Because, you, you know, if, especially if you're desperate to make a living, uh, you know, I have someone in my family who's an artist who has never sold a piece has never wanted to sell a piece and is afraid to sell a piece because he doesn't want it to influence his art. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that you ask very insightful, poignant questions and pose positions that are really uh, have been omnipresent in my consciousness for the last 40 something years that I've been doing this. Uh, there's a difference between being a painter and making a living as a painter and, um, and the criteria changes. And um, our dear friend, Joe McGurl, he and I have talked about this because we're such dear friends and our kids grew up together. Mm -hmm. And we always talked about the fact that we, we're, we're making a living doing this. And some people will agree with what I'm about to say and some people will be ashamed of me for what I'm about to say, but there are internal motives and external motives. And if you've got the, the discipline to compartmentalize those two and recognize them and, what, and to what degree they're influencing you, you can rest well at night. And you can paint paintings that are not uh, designed for an audience, but that you may know will have uh, a greater appeal. So and what's the difference? Is, is the difference, uh, that's good enough, send it off to sell no, it? No, it's subject matter. It's never quality of paint. The quality of paint has to be high every time you do it. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah. Because, but, but, you know, one, one, if one is a machine, you know, trying to, trying to generate revenue, one could say, well, you know, it's good enough. I can send it out the door. From my perspective, it's like, I can't send it out the door. Yeah. It's not, it just, there's something wrong with it. It's not right yet. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the uh, integrity of the craft, that was never once compromised by me. Um, and never I, once? No. Well, if, if perhaps it was, but it was unintentional. It was by okay. mistake. 
I was too tired or I missed something and that kind of thing. So you never had a gallery say to you, you know, uh, we could sell those sailboat paintings all day long, you know, the ones sitting next to the little red barn. Could you do me 30 of those? You would never do that. Oh, no, no, no. What I'm talking about is the, uh, the, the quality of the craft. The quality, okay. The quality of the craft was okay. never compromised. All right. If I wanted to do a painting of an old abandoned cement truck versus a cat boat sailing through a marsh, when my kids were little and I had a mortgage to pay, I painted the cat boat sailing through the marsh. Beach cleaning toilets. It does beat cleaning toilets. And there's, there's not that there's anything wrong. No, with that. there isn't. And I think it was Hawthorne or one of the great American existentialists simply said there's honor in work. Yeah. And I always had that that tenet in my mind. And it just so happened I love sailboats and I love marshes, so it wasn't a big deal for me. Yeah, and you're painting. Uh, and I'm painting. Yeah, I mean, uh, it can't be a bad day if you're painting. It was even, not. Even if you're painting badly. Yeah, 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 exactly. So yeah, did I paint for a market? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love the subject, but I, my works were, were greedily consumed by a market down in Cape Cod and Connecticut, and I was just so fortunate mm -hmm. um, that I, I happened to love sailing ships, and I loved the water, and I loved the shoreline. And there was an audience waiting for those pictures, well, and, so I was and, just you know, lucky. And that's very worthy. It's very, actually, it's very noble in the sense that you're doing something that people love. They want to own it. They want to hang it on their walls and mm -hmm. look, at it, look at it every day. What can be wrong with that? I didn't really see a negative. Yeah. The, any negatives I got were from some colleagues or acquaintances that I had that thought that I was a sellout or I wasn't a purist or any of that. And I said, listen, I'm doing what I want to do, and I'm raising kids. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> Poke at me if you want, but it's not <laughs> bugging me. <laughs> so uh, you mentioned purist, so I'm going to go down this road. Mm -hmm. um, because I publish Plein Air magazine, I will hear from people who say, um, a Plein Air painting is not pure unless yeah. it's been done outdoors only. A Plein Air painting is not, done, not pure if it's done in more than one session. You know, uh, it's not, it's not, a, it can't even be a good painting if it's done from a photograph. You know, you hear a lot of these ideas that people have about what's right or what's wrong. Yeah. Does it, any of that matter? To me? No. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yet, so now we can't talk about religion, politics, or plein air painting. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can talk about religion. You want to go there? Sure. All right. So, well... Yeah, from my perspective, it's, you know, the goal is to do a beautiful piece of artwork. Yes. And, you know, Bouguereau back in the, uh, uh, in the French Academy uh, was using photographs. Mm -hmm. I bet he did beautiful paintings. Yeah. Yep. And, and I would imagine there's been a lot of photographs used over the years, but it's, it's about knowing the craft and knowing what to do mm -hmm. and how to do it right. So Theodore Robinson, Albert Beardstadt, uh, um, uh, Thomas Aikens, mm -hmm. photography was present in all of their studios. So um, uh, my personal position is that um, if the work has been inspired and motivated by being uh, outside, on location, and uh, um, you're dedicated to that experience, uh, I don't really need to dissect it any further than that. Um, 
I, I practice and teach observation and invention. Those two things go together. Visual veracity. You have to develop your observation skills to the point where you can really see accurately outdoors. And you've got a craft that will follow suit. So that you've got the skill to say, I know what this looked like out here. I know what this is. Um, you, then you have the freedom and also the obligation to have your artistic intellect and your art, art, artistic intuition and instinct influence what it is you've seen. That's the inventive part. That inventive part can be back in your studio. Yeah. And that inventive part can have the aid of a photograph. But that inventive part can also be moving a tree to make a better composition. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I mean, you're given, uh, with freedom comes responsibility. We've all heard that. <laughs> so the same, this, it certainly applies to painting. So you, uh, you have to know your craft and you have to have your point of view and your perceptions. So the only time I really think that I would be a purist is, and I've participated in a number of them, the plein air uh, events, the competitions. You know, um, so working outside all day, you're given a host family or a hotel room. Going back in your room to me and tweaking a little edge here and finessing the thing a little bit, I don't consider that to be uh, uh, um, illegitimate. No, as a matter of fact, uh, we talked earlier before we started the interview about getting away from your work. Uh-huh. You know, yes. that you, you, you got to have some perspective. If you can put a piece of work down for uh, two weeks and then look at it again, you're going to see it completely differently. When you're working on something in, intensely for two, three, four hours uh, outdoors, you can't see it anymore. No, you can't. And, and yeah. also, you can't see if your values are right because you're outdoors. Mm -hmm. you get it indoors, and you might see, oh, you know, the sky needs to be, you know, it's too bright or too dark or something, or, you know, or you know, just tweaking it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't see anything wrong with that either. Yeah, uh, I say, you know, you, you take the you take the five days of a competition and you and. Um, gather it together so that it's one event and say, okay, I'm here with my equipment. I just got off a plane and I got four days to do this stuff. Yeah. To look at the event in its entirety. And what can I do this week? You know, what you don't want to do is start snapping pictures like crazy and putting them up on your monitor and working on your paintings at night in your hotel room. That's not cool. Yeah. But everybody has to live according to their own conscience. That's right. But to, to have the, um, the reconsideration of passages in a painting that you just worked your your tail off, you know, on two or three paintings that day, back in a room to say, oh yeah, that's, that, that is perfectly legitimate practice. And to further that conversation, uh, I, I obviously focus on landscape, seascape, marine work, although and go into any museum and who can't be captivated by brilliant figure work and portraiture and all that. But if, let's stay focused on, on landscape painting, you pick any museum on the planet. I, I've been to many, not nearly enough. You look at those landscape paintings, they were not done in one session. And yeah. you know, there's, you look at Emil Carlson's landscapes. I mean, they're, they're just so genius, they're so poetic. You could, the names could go on and on and on and on. The old line school, uh, you look at Redfield, look at Willard, uh, um, Willard Metcalf, you know, anywhere you go. Um, that work is considered and reconsidered and addressed in the studio, so. Well, and, and you know, these guys that you mentioned, 
they get some incredible texture that can only come from layering. Absolutely. And they, it, it, and or glazing, or they you know they're managing to get some, you know, some darks in the crevices between the brush strokes that you know just make it come alive. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. 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 That that patina that gets built with scumbling and layer after layer after layer, it's just. Uh, so many painters we could pull out. I mean, Joe McGurl does it a lot, you know, that layering and layering that he gets and then wiping out a layer and letting those darks stay in the crevices just as you described, yeah. Yeah, there's a... So you, you mentioned a number of artists. You mentioned Theodore Robinson, who does not get a lot of notice or credit. Yeah. You know, most people don't even know who he is. He was, he studied with Monet. He, mm -hmm. he came, he, he was, one of the people who supposedly brought plein air painting back to America, uh -huh. although I think plein air painting was taking place, I think that, you know, the Hudson River guys were doing some sketching on location, but they probably weren't doing much paint. Although I think Durand in uh, his, he had a magazine called The Crayon. Yeah, right. And, and, oh, I haven't heard that in I a long time. I think he talked about, <clears throat> he, had, he had servants uh, that helped him get his, studio easel and his stuff to the top of a hill up in the Catskills or Adirondacks or something. And he talked about grinding his pigments on location. So he did do some painting on location. Yeah. But is there somebody out there that, that you really love, that really inspired you, that is not, not the ones that we hear about all the time? You know, we always hear about Sargent and Soroya, Thorne, yeah. and you know, those, those heroes. Yep. Are there any heroes that you have that people might not know? Uh, perhaps there are indeed. In the field sketches, by the way, of Thomas Hill. Oh. Wow. He was a different personality in the studio, but if you look at his field work, it was so poetic, so simple, so straightforward. No adornments, just beautiful truth in his work. Frederick Church's field studies with that way. But I can bring up a couple of names. James Smiley, hmm. he was a post-impressionist, brilliant painter. His brother George Smiley was an etcher, so he used to take his brother's paintings and translate them into etchings for newspapers and magazines. Worthington Whitridge, hmm. oh, The Road to the Sea, what a painting. William Lamb Picknell, absolutely brilliant, brilliant. Um, a landscape painter, studied in Europe, worked ex extensively in, in, um, in New England. Um, where else can I go? Um, Montchamblanc. Uh, if I can't spell his name, I shouldn't use it in the interview. <laughs> I saw his work at the, uh, at the gallery, at, at the museum in Stockton, California. Um, the Hagen. The Hagen. Just knocked me over. Um, but now we'll go, th these names are probably well known, but an artist that absolutely, utterly, too, that utterly changed my life, Dennis Miller Bunker hmm. and Arthur Streeton. Really? <sighs> why, why Streeton? Um, well, I'll tell you when first. Okay. I was with Joe McGurl and Bill Davis. The three of us were the three amigos there for a while, painting together constantly. And we got caught in a deluge of rain in Connecticut. So we went to the Hartford Athenaeum. And there was an exhibition of American painters and Australian painters together. And the American painters were the one that you expected to see. Sanford Gifford, Kensett, the whole group. I mean, not to diminish them. They, no. they were my heroes right. and studied them. <clears throat> 
But I turned a corner and there was an Arthur Streeton painting, five feet square or so. And it, uh, it literally took the air out of my chest. I couldn't believe that sight. It, it, it pushed me backwards. Um, and it, it was a painting of a river valley in an arid, arid Australian heat. And I just couldn't take my eyes off it. It was alive. Mm. It, was, it was an animate object. And it was so beautifully, and this is a funny word, but contemporarily done. It looked like it had been painted that day. Mm. It had a modern look to it. Um, and it did away with all the superfluous. It exalted all the essential. And it said everything the landscape painting needs to say. And I just couldn't believe it. And McCubbins was in that show and a lot of the other Australian painters. And I was just dumbstruck by that. And, and they don't, we, we don't even see them in America. No, we, you can't see this as stuff As you here. know, we, I had a book in the World Famous Artist Cabin where you stayed on, on the Australian oh, painters. Oh, we, yeah. Mm -hmm. Sp spectacular. We poured over that. Uh, spectacular. In, uh, in uh, the evenings we had here. So how do you... How do you interpret these influences into your own work? You, you know, you mentioned several, but are you, when you're painting, are you thinking about, you know, this is something that, that I learned from this, this artist or that artist, or is it just kind of a, that, you know, all of it informs who you have become? <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it's the latter. Yeah. Uh, when I was younger, I was so heavily in, well, by the way, I'm not nearly my favorite painter. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm so much more, uh, I, I want to be self, I want to have some self-respect here. I'm, I'm just so inspired by some painters that I see that uh, I, um, I want to invite their influence into my process, into my, yeah. into my work. So it is, is the latter. I'm very fortunate. I, w I was not a particularly good student except for a couple of topics. Um, and two of my favorite topics on earth are boats and painting. <laughs> so if it's something that I've been presented with or, or, or exposed to, it sticks. Yeah. So I've got a pretty good running Rolodex of right. images of paintings by Picknell and when Metcalf would throw his name in there. And so as I'm painting, I am reminded of the, their paintings that I've seen. Right, so when you I, see a problem, you go, oh, you're, you're recalling something. Yep, absolutely. From somebody. Yep, and, and it's, uh, I used to, uh, when I was younger, less mature as a painter, I had more to prove to myself. So I was actually a little bit restrictive according to my doctrine and my method. Um, even though I still work in a, what some people can say, I, I hate to say tight or detailed. I, that gets assigned to me a lot and I don't care for it. Uh, my paintings have a lot of information in them because as Andrew Wyeth said, one of my all-time heroes, he said, I want to wring it out like a sponge. <laughs> I remember seeing that in the film of him and I love the way he, he twisted his hands. And that's what I do. I, I don't want to abbreviate anything. Right. I, love to, I love to be fully satiated when I'm finished with a subject. You know, we're living in a very interesting time. Uh, there are more high-quality painters <laughs> alive today than any time in history. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that may be an overstatement because there may be lots of them that we didn't know about that were painting that never got any notoriety. But because of, uh, in America, because of the plein air movement, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we have... Uh, 
we have developed some statistics that we don't know if are, are completely accurate, but there, there are 150, 200,000 people painting in plein air in America. Good heavens. Now, a lot of them are Sunday painters or hobbyists, mm -hmm. and, and that, nothing wrong with that. All are welcome. Yeah. Yeah. But, but the quality of work, and, and maybe it's because, maybe it was there, but we're seeing it because we can see it on Instagram or Facebook. Uh, I am just blown away by the quality. There are the people like you, like McGurl, who are the leaders uh, you have become almost the, you know, the, the um, senior senators, if you will, of our... Of <laughs> I our go time. along with the senior part. <laughs> yeah, I get that. But, um, <laughs> you, know, you know, people are, people are looking up to, to you guys, but I'm seeing 20-year-olds that are knocking it out of the mm. park. That it just, it blows me away. The, the only thing that I, I wish we could figure out how to do is to get m more people seeing art in person. Yeah. Because when you're looking at a painting on Instagram, you can't see the little crevices of paint and, and the, the way the light's hitting it, you know, from, from natural light and so on. And, and it's, it's so different. And that's one thing I don't know how to change. But it is a really interesting time. Do you have any idea why that is? Why, why we're having this, this uh, resurgence of such great painters? Uh, I could sort of walk through it a little bit. Um, I would say um, at, the, uh, at the risk of sounding a bit fawning, you've been a big part of it. Um, yeah. The way you've opened up the venue of, of, of landscape painting to people, that it's, uh, it's available, it's accessible, it's not just a passive activity, it's a lifestyle, there's a lot of dimensions to it. There's a, a community of colleagues and friends and acquaintances. There's a network of destinations. There's a lot of components in what you've created and it should be recognized and honored and celebrated. So well, that I, is part of it. Thank you, I didn't create it. Uh, the plein air painters- Well, you had of, a pretty good part Well, the plein air painters of America created it. Th uh, I should say we, I am one of them. <laughs> um, we were there at the, at the, at the beginning, the yeah. burgeoning stages of, of celebrating The that. resurgence. The resurgence of it, yeah, and the um, revitalization of the act. Um, uh, so, that's one component. Uh, there are a lot more people on the planet now, so just by numbers of practitioners, uh, there is a big there's a big part of it that I simply don't know. The the um, the resurgence, the the uh, uh, the presentation of ateliers and the traditional forms of study that wasn't around when I was in my teens and twenties. No. It, it was. It, bas it wasn't even around when I started the magazines. There were <clears throat> there were basically three or four big ateliers, mm -hmm. and now there are four hundred of them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because students bred students who bred students. Yes, exactly. So I think that propagation of that, that exponential growth of it, of what exactly what you just described, I think is probably the primary answer to it. Um, the ratio between audience and practitioner used to be audience is here and practitioner is here. <laughs> now, it's like, now it's like that. Well, that's interesting you say that because I was talking to some folks from one of the big plein air events and they said, uh, this is an event back east that has a lot of people attending uh, for 
10, 20 years. And they said, we have noticed that the people who would attend year after year after year after year have now become painters. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So yeah. that's, a, that's a great example of the audience has become the mm -hmm. entertainer, if you will. I had this old grouch friend of mine. You have friends? Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> Let's use the term loosely, shall we? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but undoubtedly a card-carrying grouch. And he said, why, why, you, uh, why are you teaching all these people to paint? They're just going to grow up to compete with you. <laughs> I said, I'm not living with that much fear, all right? <laughs> and so what if they do? <laughs> well, you have to live with a spirit of abundance. Yes, all boats rise with the tide. That's right. Yeah, don't, don't be stingy about anything, about your knowledge, about your energy, about your commitment, about your dedication to others, and, uh, and, and don't, don't protect things, don't cover things. There's, there's, nothing there's no need to be proprietary about anything in life, but especially in our profession. So what is your best advice, somebody watching this who is an artist or a beginner artist, <clears throat> What, and they're trying, they're just trying to figure it all out. They're yeah. trying to figure out how do I start? How do I get better? What would you say to them? Yeah, uh, a, a few things. And I've loved that. This has been posed by people in interviews in the past. What would you say to a 12-year-old Don Demers? Or what would you say to a 16-year-old Don Demers? I don't like speaking in the third person because famous athletes do it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I find it obnoxious, but um, well, what I, what I share with my students when I have them is that we're, we don't necessarily have to answer the question of why we want to do this. That's inexplicable. I personally, for me, think that, I don't want to get too esoteric here, but for me, my work, because I did it so intuitively as a young boy, it um, gave me a sense of connection it, uh, once you were a separate entity on this earth, I think we can have a degree of homesickness because we're not in communion with the universe. And so it was a vehicle for me to overcome my homesickness. So that's my most profound, if you will. You are very profound. Definition of why I do what I do. It's a vehicle from which I can alleviate my homesickness, my separation. So. So don't, you don't have to overthink why you do it. But um, from a practical standpoint, it's the how and the why we do this. Love the how. Love your tools. Love your pencils, your crayons, your oil paints, your I can't paper. get enough of that stuff. I can't stuff. get I enough of that stuff. I just keep buying it all. You do. And, yeah. and, and have that be your <laughs> private world. I mean, I've, as I've said to people, plein air painting is doing the most private thing you can think of in a public place. Yeah. And that's a big leap. You got people bugging, buzzing around you and, and you're trying to be private and solitary. So just love the materials and love the process of it. And if and when you can, have your motives be internal, not external. Don't hide your paper because somebody can see it. Your drawing's not coming out so well. Um, just try to have the internal confidence to be de de dedicated to yourself in your work. And ask yourself questions all the time. What is it I want to draw or paint and why? to some degree, but b have your own internal world. And when you're comfortable and when you want to, then you make the choice of presenting it publicly. Show it to somebody. We all want to, that's where we put frames on the stuff. 
and walk them across the threshold out into the public. But um, um, so back to the practicality, don't expect miracles, don't expect shortcuts, don't expect tricks, don't expect any of that stuff. There's no magic brush, magic paint. Um, and just simply accept the fact that you're going to do it wrong a lot of times before you do it right. Embrace most, the struggle. Embrace the struggle. Most, most everything I know about painting, I know because I've done it wrong way too many times until I finally said, oh, that's it. I landed the plane in the woods one time, then I landed the plane on the building, and finally I hit the runway. <laughs> so you're driving down the road, you got your easel in the, in the trunk, you're looking for something that inspires you so you can pull over and do a quick study. Yep. You see something, you slam on the brakes, you get out, uh, what do you do next? Uh, change your mind and stop looking at it as identifiable objects. We have this duality. It's like being in Harry Potter's world where there are muggles and there are mortals or whatever those definitions were, and we coexist. There's an artistic world that is suspended upon the prosaic world. And we see it, in the prosaic world, we see it as a, a bus, a building, a tree, a parking lot, a hill, a mountain. In the artistic world, we see it as a light, a shadow, a pattern, a rhythm, a texture. You change your mind, you, ch you, you change your dialect and start speaking in another language. You start speaking in, in artistry instead of familiarity. And mm. that's what will open up a painting. Really? Never that, heard ma it. that makes a trash can a worthy subject. I've often thought a great, great workshop exercise would be to take everybody to a back alley and say, okay, you can't step more than 50 feet from here. Excellent. Find something to paint and yep. make it beautiful. That's it. And I remember Clyde Aspavig saying when he first started that he would get in the car and drive for miles and miles and miles and he'd come back at the end of the day. I think, yeah, I'm certain it was Clyde that said this. Clyde, forgive me if I have some inaccuracies here. And he'd come back and not have made a painting. But once his eyes opened, and I always thought a great name for a kid show would be Made You Look. Because <laughs> once you look, you never look back. Yeah. The world changes. So he said, now I can walk into my backyard and see clothes on a clothesline or a pile of laundry or something, and there's a painting right there. Yeah. Soroya taught us that. That painting by Sargent, I wish I could remember the title of it. It's in the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. It's his painting friend sitting uh, at one end of the bed, and the bed's all unmade, and the sheets are all in a big pile. You know, some people, oh, that's a, sh that's a chore. I've got to go wash those sheets. It wasn't a sergeant. Well, Wyeth did the same thing. Uh, all, yep, all the time. Just, the Just every day made beauty out of everyday Prosaic objects. to profound. That's what, that's what, so that, that's my motive when I pull over. And I was the same. I used to, I mean, I've lived, spent my summers on the coast of Maine. And I used to walk around and not be able to see a painting. Like, what happened? <laughs> so what, <clears throat> 100, 150, 300, 500 years from now, um, assuming you're not around, what? I am on a strong vitamin regiment. Oh, that's good. Yeah. What, what would you hope? What would you hope that people think about you or know about you that is important for you to share to them? <sighs> that I was able to recognize beauty in the world. Um, I was a dedicated observer to the world. Um, 
I celebrated the places I found that I thought um, that exalted beauty. So I, said, I think I said beauty three times. And I mean it literally and I mean it um, figuratively as well. That um, I had a certain filter in my perceptions as I wandered around on this world of things that um, uh, manifest uh, an aesthetic. And also, I think about this now all the time, I'm interested in the poignant balance between humans and the land they live on. And uh, that red house there, um, it's very humble. It's very beautiful in its proportions. It doesn't mean to be, it just is. I don't think the people that built that were, were, were uh, heavily weighed by architectural design. And where it's positioned on that shore, where it has a relationship to the water, it, there's, a, there's a humble elegance in those simple things. And I, I find myself seeking those subjects out all the time. It's one of the reasons I love sailing vessels. They're a symbol of this beautiful symbiosis between a human-made object and how it can uh, utilize natural forces and how gracious it is in its presence there. So those would be the themes I'd like them to look at. Well, Don, thank you so much for being on the Plein Air Podcast. It has been my honor and pleasure to be with you, um, both as friends and as colleagues. And I'm uh, very appreciative of the opportunity to share my thoughts and ideas with you and with the audience. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Don. That was fabulous. Uh, you know, I just can't say enough good things about you. You're such a great guy. And I'm looking forward to spending some time with you maybe this summer. Maybe come up and go painting in the Adirondacks or I'll come up to Booth Bay. Okay. Are you guys ready to improve your art sales for 2023? This is going to be a great year. You may hear all this stuff about the economy. It's going to be a great year, but it's up to you. You have to make it a great year. So it's time for the Marketing Minute. This is the Marketing Minute with Eric Rhodes, author of the number one Amazon bestseller, Make More Money Selling Your Art, Proven Techniques to Turn Your Passion into Profit. In the Art Marketing Minute, my goal is to answer your art marketing questions. You can send them in or upload a video question, artmarketing.com slash questions. Or you can email it to me, eric at artmarketing.com. Most people email them. And my producer, uh, Amadine, who is French, has the questions for us. Amadine? The first question is from TJ Pruitt from Virginia. If your primary purpose with your art is not monetizing, how best do you showcase art that you want to reach people but are not primarily concerned in selling? For me, I enjoy when my art brings joy to others, so I want to give it the best possible exposure for that cause. All right, TJ, I'm going to tell you a story. Great question. Um, I hold these week-long retreats. I do one in the Adirondacks every June, although I think I'm going to stop doing it pretty soon because... I, you know, this is like the summer will be like the 12th one and I'm kind of sick of doing it. I want to go somewhere different. Uh, I don't know if I'll stop or not, but I might. Anyway, I hold these retreats and do another one at Fall Color Week. And one time we did Fall Color Week in, in, in Kananaskis Park, Banff Lake Louise in Canada. And we had an unseasonably early snow and a massive snowstorm. And a lot of people didn't want to go out. So we were painting out, looking out the windows and painting indoors. Some of us went out and painted part of the time. But I offered some personal coaching to people because I teach marketing. And a bunch of people took me up on it. And this one guy 
uh, wanted some time. And we started talking about him wanting to sell his art and he was asking how to do it. And I could sense that his heart wasn't really into it. So I just said, you know, why do you want to sell your art? And he said, well, I guess because I thought I was supposed to. And I said, well, there's no supposed to. Why do you really want to sell art? He says, I don't know. I said, do you need the money? He said, no, I don't need the money. I retired. I had a great job. I don't need the money. I said, then why do you want to sell your art? He says, well, I guess I don't really want to sell it. He says, I, and what we finally figured out is I asked him a bunch of questions and we figured out that his need was that he wanted to contribute somehow. He wanted some recognition uh, for his art. It's always nice to be validated that somebody else likes your art, um, which is not always the case. You know, sometimes I'll give a painting to a family member and they'll go, oh, thanks, you know, with gritted teeth. Um, <laughs> because, you know, art's a personal thing. Sometimes, you know, they're not going to like it. So we crafted a plan for him to market his art, but not to sell it. At the end, we determined that he wanted to leverage his art to help organizations and charities that he loved. So we worked on a plan to get him involved in those charities and auctions. And we find ways to help uh, his art help others. And we left, he was on fire with a mission. Now, I go into a lot of that stuff in my book. Uh, there's a lot of different things you can do to get involved. But uh, essentially, if your charity's local, then you need to become famous locally. And you have to follow a marketing plan to become famous locally because they want your art and, and your art will raise more money. You know, if you're putting a piece of uh, garbage uh, art into an auction, it's not going to sell. That's going to be embarrassing. So you got to be good. You got to make sure that you're, you're living up to it, you know, and, and, uh, I did that one time when I wasn't very good. I put a piece of art in, in a auction for the kids, uh, elementary school and nobody bought it. And, uh, so that just reflected badly on me. So, you know, now I'm really, really careful. I had a moment one time, it was a really great moment when, uh, I had this great big painting. I did it just cause I loved it. It was one of my better ones at the time. And I just gave it to this charity auction and it ended up, you know, it was the number one fundraiser for that auction. They had me stand up, you know, they're holding it up and I got a lot of recognition. It was kind of cool. And, uh, and at the same time, the charity made a lot of money. So that was really the goal. So find a cause, find a cause or two. And there's no rule about a painting has to make you money. You, you know, painting is about bringing you joy. Most people don't start painting because they want to make a living becoming a painting, painter. Most people want to paint because they love painting. They want to get good at it. And then a lot of them say, you know, I kind of like to make a living at it. And a lot of that goes back to recognition, but a lot of it is about, Hey, I don't want to work in this crummy job anymore. I want to, I, I'd rather paint all day. And if I can paint and make my living, that's even better. So you might consider depending on the quality of your work to explore, uh, leaving a few select pieces to some select museums you might not get into the Metropolitan Museum of Art or the uh, LA or Chicago museums, but um, unless you're really already famous and even then probably not, but you know, there's hundreds of small local community museums that need art and art donations. And uh, I'm actually working on a lifetime plan to build uh, a museum of plein air and of uh, realism, because those are two areas that I'm really, really, really excited about. All I need all I need is somebody with a lot of money to, um, to fund it. I need a building in a major city and I have all the art and some of the art I need to get yet. But, um, anyway, 
uh, that's the kind of thing you can do is, is uh, donate art. Um, and you have to put some stipulations. Whenever you donate anything, you got to put stipulations. Now, there's a guy by the name of Alphonse Mucha, great painter, was really known for his Art Nouveau work, but he was a brilliant painter. He did this thing, uh, this series of paintings called the, um, the, the Czech epic or the Slav epic or something like that. And uh, I've seen them, uh, but they have been in hiding because he gave them to the city of Budapest and, and said that they must show them, but he never said when or how long. So they sat in a warehouse for a hundred years before they were shown. Now they're starting to get shown a little bit, but you want to make sure you stipulate, you know, here's what to do. You can't sell my paintings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Next question, Amandine. The next question is from Eugene from Hawaii. Does striving for titles from, from one's peer group create unnecessary stress? Does it distract from the essence and joy of painting for pleasure? Are there any benefit to a title? What are the negatives? I see people spending a lot of money chasing the dream of a title. Now, Eugene, because you didn't specify what kind of title, I'm going to have to guess. I'm not sure what you mean by titles. I can think of a couple of things. One is to have a title in a local art club, you know, like president or treasurer, but I don't think that's what you mean. Um, I think what you probably mean is a title from an organization. For instance, there's one called the Oil Painters of America. There's the one called the American Impressionist Society. There's lots of them. Um, if you mean a title from one of those, let's explore the pros and cons. Now, these titles are typically not political. Uh, they can be, but usually not. You get them from winning a certain number of awards annually. And if you win a certain number of awards annually in so many years in a row and you get to accumulate a certain number of awards, that adds up to getting voted in and getting a title. Oftentimes it's a master title or a signature member title. And that way you can sign your paintings with that, uh, that master title. So for instance, for the Oil Painters of America, OPA, you sign your painting, you know, Eric Rhodes, comma, OPAM, or OPM. Uh, and the idea is that you are an OPA master, right? And so you, that means you've earned that title. Now, there is prestige to that, huge prestige um, among painters who know how hard you work to get there. Uh, and they know that the standard is high, that you don't get those awards and win those awards by putting together crummy paintings. You, you get a good standard. And, but you have to enter a lot of paintings until you get to the point where you've elevated yourself. Now, among some collectors and some galleries, that is also very prestigious. So that's a pretty big deal. So keep that in mind. Now, uh, the reality is there are big names out there, brilliant masters who we all know and love, who don't have any titles. Uh, and there are some who have them, but they don't use them. Uh, it just depends on, on what you want to do. The process of getting a title takes a lot of commitment and time and hopefully it elevates your standard of work. And when you don't win, you learn, you grow, you try harder next time and you keep trying more and more to win. Now competitions of any kind make you stronger in our own plein air salon uh, competition, which is monthly, by the way. Um, it's not, by the way, it's also not all plein air. It's all kinds of painting portraits, figures, everything. But uh, because it's sponsored by Plein Air Magazine, that's, that's why it's called that. But anyway, 
I've seen the quality increase over the years because the people who enter get better and better and better and better and better. And so, and by the way, there are top artists who enter, there are new artists who enter, there are new artists who win, there are top artists who win. You know, there's no rhyme or reason, but when you compete, you get better. And the same is true when you enter these organizations, if you're a member, first you gotta belong. I, um, uh, California Art Club, does this too. Uh, they have, I don't think they have titles though. I'm not sure. Anyway, um, I've never tried to get a title. I'm not so sure that I have the time to try to get a title because it's not really all that important to me, but I don't have to make my living selling my work. And, and I think I could make a living selling my work without a title, but it might become important at some point in my life. If I ever decide to paint full-time or something, which I don't think I'll do, but you never know. Uh, we all have to make our own art journey about our own goals, our own interests, our own time, not somebody else's desires for us. I paint because I love to paint. You probably paint because you love to paint. I don't send the galleries a lot of work because I don't do a lot of work. I don't want the pressure. I don't, I turn down shows because I don't want the pressure of creating shows. I just want to paint. I want to have fun. And I get some good ones. I'll send them off to the galleries. I don't even care if they sell, but they do sometimes and sometimes they don't. Um, if I were making my living full-time, I would care a lot more, right? Uh, but I make my living publishing art magazines and conferences and things like that. So it's not about that. Um, I love that I can just paint without pressure. And that might be you. You might want to just paint without pressure. Nothing else matters to me. I don't need awards. I don't need titles. I don't care what happens. I just want to paint because I enjoy it. And, uh, you know, and, and I like to paint so I can hang out with my friends and, and I want to be good enough so that I don't completely embarrass myself, but do what you want to do. Follow what you want to do. Don't follow a Pied Piper. All right. That is today's art marketing minute. This has been the marketing minute with Eric Rhodes. You can learn more at artmarketing.com. And I also want to remind you to join me at Plein Air Live coming up in March, uh, pleinairlive.com. Join me at the Plein Air Convention. You know, the, it's pleinairconvention.com, which is coming up in May. And uh, if you're not already a subscriber to Plein Air Magazine, man, you will love it. You really will love it. I know I, I'm not being humble about that, but I hear so many, so many people just say they can't wait. You know, some people have had it for 10 years. They just can't wait for it to come in. I hope that would be the case for you. And if you don't love it, you can cancel, but nobody ever does. Well, there was that one guy one time. Right. <laughs> uh, if you've not seen my blog where I talk about art and life and stuff and things, uh, it's called Sunday Coffee. You can get it for free weekly at coffeewitheric.com. We've got a big, big, big audience on that. I don't know how many, but I know it's big. Um, people keep forwarding it. That's nice. Um, also, I'm on the air daily on Facebook. The show is called Art School Live, where hundreds of artists do demonstrations and talks. One every day, five days a week. I'm on noon Eastern every weekday, mostly live, sometimes replay. Uh, you can subscribe on YouTube by searching Streamline Art and hit the subscribe button. Also, please follow me, Eric Rhodes, on Instagram and Facebook. And by the way, I don't have it here to show you. But I got my Instagram, not my Instagram, I got my YouTube plaques designating they've got 100,000 followers. That's a pretty big deal for me. Uh, it's a plaque, you know, it hangs up somewhere and gets dust, but it's kind of nice to get recognition. Anyway, it's a, 
it's a, a great thing to, to uh, see a lot of people get something out of it. Uh, anyway, I'm Eric Rhodes. I'm the publisher and founder of Planet Air Magazine, among others. Thank you for tuning in today. And remember, it's a big world out there. Go paint it. Bye-bye. This has been the Plein Air Podcast with Plein Air Magazine's Eric Rhodes. You can help spread the word about Plein Air painting by sharing this podcast with your friends. And you can leave a review or subscribe on iTunes so it comes to you every week. And you can even reach Eric by email, eric at plenairmagazine.com. Be sure to pick up our free ebook, 240 Plein Air Painting Tips by some of America's top painters. It's free at plenairtips.com. Tune in next week for more great interviews. Thanks for listening.